Let me tell you the history of this passage about the sheep and goats. I don't mean the history you would get if you went to Bible college or seminary. I mean my own personal history with this passage. The first time I remember hearing about the sheep and goats, I was about 11 years of age. My cousin Bob and I were on a spiritual search. We were looking for a church that had a basketball team. We found it at the Broadway Presbyterian Church in New York, and that's when I learned one of the great lessons of life, and that is that every silver lining has a cloud. Because in order to play on the team, you had to go to Sunday school at least three Sundays a month. And that's where I came under the influence of Miss Lorch. Miss Lorch was a Sunday school teacher. She seemed to have a fascination with the second coming, and particularly about the judgments that were coming. Probably explained by the guys in her Sunday school class. And uh, she talked about the judgment of the sheep and goats. And that was back in my literalistic days of interpretation. So when she talked about sheep and goats, I thought she was talking about sheep and goats. And it seemed, a, you know, a bit of a downer for the king of the universe to be separating out animals, sheep and goats. But Miss Lorch also told me that Jesus counted the hair on my head. And I think if he was into that kind of trivia, sheep and goats made some sense. Next time I came to this passage was in my early teens. By that time, I had figured out <laughs> that the sheep were people and the goats were people. Sheep were the good people, the goats were the bad people. Why the sheep were the good people, <laughs> I had no idea. In fact, I wondered about that for a long time. A couple of years ago, I was out in western Washington and I talk with a man who raised sheep. I mean, 10,000 of them at a time. I said, when you think of sheep, what comes to your mind? He shot back, stupid. They've got to be the stupidest animals God ever made. I'm not going to touch that this morning. Some pastors might be willing to fill it in. I said, so what about goats? I was quick with that. He said, they're stubborn animals. They have terrible appetites. They eat just about anything. At any rate, the sheep were the good people. Goats are the bad people. I, I tried to picture this judgment as a 13-year-old. Um, it says it's the judgment of the nations. <laughs> so I figured it's going to be a big crowd there. When I tried to imagine that crowd, the best I could do was the crowd at Macy's department store in New York just before Christmas. You know, people pushing, shoving, trying to get to the gloves or the shirts or the sweaters. And then suddenly up on the balcony, Jesus would appear with some of his musical angels. <laughs> they put down their harps, they pick up their horns, there'd be this blast and then there would be the announcement, this is the judgment of the sheep and goats. You who are sheep, over to the king's right, your left. You who are goats, over to the king's left, your right. <laughs> well, I knew that it would be a piece of cake for myself, those in the Sunday school class. We just saunter over to the king's right. 
what I really worried about were the fellows in my gang, fellows like Carl Bracali and Marty Lippin and Sheldon Bleicher, Ernie Morlock. I mean, they didn't go to Sunday school. They never heard of the judgment of the sheep and goats. So somebody was going to have to explain this to them. And I imagine that, you know, there would be an angel assigned to go to those guys and say, all right, you fellas are goats. You're over to the king's left. And they say, what do you get off calling us goats? How come you're calling us goats? And the angel will say, it's the way you treated the king. I mean, when he was in your presence, he, he was hungry. You didn't feed him. He was thirsty. You didn't give him anything to drink. He needed a place to stay. You didn't invite him in. He uh, needed clothes. You didn't clothe him. He was sick. You didn't help him. In prison, you didn't visit him. And they say, you got to be kidding. We well, ain't never seen that king. He ain't been in our neighborhood. And then the angel will have to say, well, it wasn't the king exactly. It was the people that the king you know, respected. They were here, and you didn't help them. <laughs> I can imagine what I'm saying. You mean to say some of these people in our neighborhood, we're supposed to take them in? Man, you don't know our town. I mean, you take in these strangers, they'll slit your throat. My friend Andy Medina might have said, you know, I got a brother up at Sing Sing Penetrancer. You go to see him twice, twice a year. Does that count? <laughs> I just knew it was going to be a tough sell for that angel fellas in my gang. More recently, I came back to it. And, and I saw something that I had never seen before. I mean, it was like reading the passage again for the first time. I, I missed something so obvious that I hadn't seen it. And that is, not only do the goats ask about how they fed the king, the sheep ask it. The sheep are as confused as the goats. I mean, the sheep ask, Lord, when did we see you hungry, give you food, thirsty, give you something to drink, needing a place to stay and take you in? Or when did we see you needing clothes and clothe you, sick, prison, visit you? <laughs> Sheep are as confused as the goats. Well, let me tell you what this passage doesn't mean. It doesn't mean if uh, you're in the supermarket and there's a box there for, to help poor children, you put in your spare change, and by the time the change hits the bottom of the, the box, you're into the kingdom. And it doesn't mean that if uh, you go to the rescue mission or to some other place on Christmas or Thanksgiving and serve meals to the poor that you qualify. I mean, if you know the gospel, if you know the gospel of Matthew, you know you don't get heaven on the cheap. So what is it about? Well, I think a, a clue is uh, found in uh, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, 
Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. It's that little phrase, blessed of my Father. That's not a throwaway line. That's crucial in the passage. In fact, it's crucial in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, this idea of being blessed by the Father. You get it, for example, in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And the Sermon on the Mount begins with what we call the Beatitudes. Series of blessings. The first beatitude says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven. Blessed are men and women who realize that they are spiritually bankrupt. Men and women who are spiritually destitute and have no coinage to get them out of debt. This is the kingdom of heaven. The next beatitude says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourn about what? Mourn about the fact that they are spiritually destitute and they have nothing in their hands to bring. They'll be comforted. And then, uh, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If you read the scriptures as you do, the promise for us is not heaven, golden streets, pearly gates. That's a way of speaking about it. We look forward to the time when the king will, in his glory, establish the kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth. And blessed are the meek. They will inherit that earth. You'll find other translations not using the word meek. They use words like uh, humble. And the reason for that, you can understand that, you're a translator, you're in a translating committee, and you come to this word and it says, you know, meek. <laughs> and uh, somebody says, wait a minute, that's not going to go. I mean, people won't understand meek. When you say meek, the next word that pops into your mind is weak, or you think of a meek little man, not enough intestinal fortitude to squish a grape. That's why they would change it. But meek, <laughs> meek is a word that has strength as it comes to us from the ancient world. Outside the Bible, it was used of a horse that won a horse race. A horse was called the meekest horse in the race. <laughs> they didn't mean horse was too shy to leave the starting gate or that it uh, you know, was afraid to take the lead. What they meant was that the horse was submissive to the jockey. One touch of the stick, it bounded forward. One movement of the rein, it went from side to side. And because it was in submission to the rider, it won the race. So blessed are those who are submissive, meek. They'll inherit the earth. The next beatitude says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. 
not blessed are the righteous. <laughs> it's blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness is not a thing. I mean, <laughs> you can't go to heaven and say, I'd like five pounds of righteousness, please. It's not a thing. In the Old Testament and in the New, righteousness has to do with a relationship. Relationship with God, relationship with others. Back in the First Testament, when we read in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed the promise of God and it was counted to him for righteousness, <laughs> it meant that believing that promise, he had this righteousness, he had this relationship with God. And for those who hunger for that relationship, they'll be filled. A relationship with God, a relationship with the people that God cares about. They'll be filled. Then the next beatitude says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That makes sense, doesn't it? It's kind of like a cycle. If you, a destitute sinner, have mourned because of that condition, and you simply submitted to the king and you hunger and thirst to be in relationship with him, relationship with others, and it happens. If, if you have received mercy, it would follow that you would extend mercy to other people. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. <laughs> I'll tell you this, if you're not pure in heart, the last person in the universe you want to see is God. It's the idea that having had this encounter with the king, had your heart changed, there'll come a time in that future kingdom where in some way you will have intimate relationship with God. And then finally, the beatitude is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Peacemakers. These are the folks who go out into life to make peace between people and God. To tell men and women that God isn't angry. That God is not your enemy. God is your friend that God has signed a peace treaty in the blood of his son, and God is satisfied with that, and all he asks is that you be satisfied with what satisfies him. It doesn't matter what you think of Jesus Christ. What matters desperately is what God thinks of him, and he is satisfied. If you'll sign your name, you have peace with him. And peace with others. That is, wherever we go as Christians, we are to bring people together, to build bridges, not walls. It's to bring together blacks and whites, Asians and Caucasians, people who are Arab and people who are Jewish. We're always trying to build the bridges. It's the mark of those who know this God. 
Well, you take all of that and back into Matthew chapter 25, where it says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you for the creation of the world. This is saying, I take it, is that those who are beatitude people, who have been changed by this king, therefore are blessed by the Father. It is saying that the normal, natural thing in life is for them to do deeds of kindness and love. I mean, the sheep don't do <laughs> what they are doing simply to get the king's favor. If you were doing that, you'd keep a list. But they just do it. They do these deeds as normally and naturally as a sheep gives wool. I haven't talked to many sheep, but I suspect if I talked to them, <laughs> they would tell me, when they produce wool, they don't stand out there in the field and say, oh, I've got to produce wool. Oh, there's wool. You know? I think it just comes. Just part of the nature being a sheep. <laughs> I thought about this a lot. thought about what it's going to be like. I, uh, I expect I'll be there. Wonder what would happen. I can imagine standing before the king and the king saying to me, uh, Robinson, do you have your date book? <laughs> yeah, yes, Lord, I had this with me all my life. I know it says you didn't bring anything into the world, you didn't bring anything out, but you know, I'm so close to this, I got to pass customs coming into the kingdom. King will say to me, well, good, I'm glad you got it. Look at that. Look at November 1983. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that, Lord. That's when I was the uh, president of the Evangelical Theological Society. I was up in Denver, came down to Dallas for the meeting. Oh, yeah, and I wrote the paper. Uh, on the relationship between hermeneutics and homiletics. <laughs> the king will say, I don't know anything about that. I seldom go to those meetings. They're too stuffy. <laughs> when I read the title of your paper, I didn't understand it, so I didn't bother looking at it. <laughs> no, what I was thinking about was that before you made the trip to Dallas, your wife, Bonnie, told you about a couple at the seminary. and They were having a tough time. I allowed that to happen. You folks put some money in an envelope, put it in their box. <laughs> you remember that? Uh, no, uh, don't worry. Maybe Bonnie does. She's better at that than I. King will say, I remember. You gave that to the couple? Huh. You gave it to me. I 
never forgot. Look at the March 1996. About the second week. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's when I was mentioned in Newsweek magazine as one of the 12 best communicators in the English-speaking world. King will say, well, I don't know. I don't ever read news magazines. You know, they're always so inaccurate. They have something like that in there. You can sure it's in. <laughs> no, what I was thinking of was after class, you were on your way to a meeting, and there's a young woman in, in the class just sitting there. You stopped and said, well, how are you doing? And she said, well, all right. And you said, how are you doing, really? And she began to weep. And she told you that her brother had died. And several months before that, her father had passed away. She was finding the grief too heavy to bear. Remember that? You skipped your meeting, just sat. And you listen. I knew she didn't, you didn't have any idea what to say to her. But you listen. Remember that? I guess so, Lord. I have so many of those meetings. I guess so. And King will say, I remember. And you stopped to listen to that young woman. You were listening to me. I never forgot. When you stand at that, when you and I stand at that judgment, forget your Vita. I mean, forget all the stuff that they read before you speak. Forget it. Really going to matter to the king. The stuff that matters most to us doesn't matter at all in his kingdom. The stuff that we don't think to notice matters greatly with him. But there are going to be a lot of surprises at that judgment. There are going to be some people so sure that they are in that they can stand before the king and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and did we not do many mighty works? The king will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. And then there are going to be other folks. When it comes to standing before that king, figure they don't have a ghost of a chance. They've made a mess of life and they failed. They don't have a chance. Unless, unless somehow, somehow the king in his in his grace and mercy, could find a way for us to come in. 
we just cast ourselves with a reckless abandon on him. And those folks will make it in. A lot of surprises with that.